Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome everyone to How Can Evidence-Based Policing Advance Police Reform Overseas? Hosted by the Department of International Relations here at the LSE. I'm going to start with the conundrum. In 2015, an unarmed black man was shot dead in Cincinnati, and criminologist Robin Engel was appointed to lead the reform effort. Engel did what all good analysts do. She looked at the evidence base at what works to diffuse violence. And what she found was somewhat surprising. There's little conclusive evidence in support of the most tried interventions. These include body-worn cameras, training to de-escalate tense situations, and civilian oversight of the police. So here's the conundrum. If we don't know how to address a problem like police violence in the United States, where most research on the police on police is, how can we do it elsewhere? So I'm Dr. Liam O'Shea at the LSE, and I lead the www.howtoreformthepolice.com project. The project's partners and I are developing a platform to synthesize the evidence on what works, where, and why to reduce police violence and corruption and to provide accessible guidance to police, activists, policymakers across the world. We're also currently looking for pilot funding. So if you're interested, have deep pockets or know of someone who does, please look us up. Addressing police problems is different uh, in different contexts, requires skills from different disciplines, which is why today I'm delighted to bring together our panel that includes leading criminologists and development practitioners. We have Dr. Rachel Kleinfeld, Senior Fellow in the Democracy, Conflict and Governance Programme at the Carnegie Endowment for International Police. Rachel is the author of the excellent Savage Order, which examines how the world's deadliest countries can forge a path to security, and which I'd thoroughly recommend to anyone interested in security in non-Western context. In addition to extensive knowledge of how to advance the rule of law abroad, which is also the title of one of her books, Rachel's recent work examines politicization of the rule of law and more established democracies. Professor Lawrence Sherman is the Wolfson Professor of Criminology Emeritus at the University of Cambridge and the director of the Cambridge Centre for Evidence-Based Policing. He's widely credited as the founder of Evidence-Based Policing for his pioneering work designing and conducting field experiments on policing across the globe. Lawrence is also the chairman of the US National Academy of Sciences Committee, which is currently examining factors across the globe, which affect police legitimacy and the ability of police to promote the rule of law and protect populations. And its latest report will be published shortly. Ziander Sturman is policy manager at the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab, based at the University of Cape Town. Last year, she published her book, Can We Be Safe?, which examines the future of policing in South Africa. Her work has also examined policing in Latin America and elsewhere, including her most recent article on militarization of policing across the world. Now, we like to innovate at howtoreformthepolice.com, so we're going to take a slightly unusual panel structure. Our panelists will have about five minutes to discuss what are the causes of police-related problems in the Global South. We'll then come round for a second pass, they'll have about 10 minutes to examine how can these problems best be addressed. The session will end with Q&A, so we do keep some traditions. Please submit your questions via the chat function, and also if you'd like your name, affiliation and so on. We also encourage you to join the debate online using hashtag LSE police reform. 
A recording will also be made available after the event and hopefully a podcast too. So I think now all that leaves me to do is hand it over to Rachel to begin. Thank you so much, Naaman. Such a pleasure to be on this. I've been watching it um, for some time now. Um, so the main causes of police-related problems in the global south, I think um, I'd like to actually talk about the main causes of police-related problems anywhere, rather than distinguish too much between the south and north. The US, of course, has its own problems. And I, I think um, I'll start with really the structure of the state. What are the police for in a state? Um, if you look at Europe, uh, it has strong states and it had strong states before it had policing. Um, and it had often disarmed the population before it had policing. They had very strong laws about who was allowed to bear arms. Um, and they also had a civil service that grew. So the way that the state formed, um, you had a monarchy as the nobles were, um, were replaced by a civil service that had to have some knowledge the nobles sort of fought to get into the civil service by requiring the civil service to be educated. There's a whole literature on that. It's only useful here because by the time police came to be, what the world in which police came into was one in which um, they were expected to be a professional service with a great deal of knowledge and education. Um, they often had national training academies with a lot of knowledge and education. And the population they were policing tended to be disarmed by monarchies and, and aristocratic norms so that they weren't facing as dangerous a population. Um, and that meant that by the time you got policing and democracy, um, the police were organized, educated, norms against self-enrichment and so on. And the, the de democracy of policing, of policing the community rather than a regime fit fairly easily into this training regimen. If you look at how a lot of other countries' police came to be, these were colonized countries. The police came to be in order to enforce the will of a foreign power and then of a regime um, that was often against the people or, or to uphold a private law in which a certain segment of the population or a certain part of the regime was being privileged over another part. In these countries, when democracy came, if democracy came, democracy came at the same time as statehood. And so you got patronage roles um, where democracy entailed giving away police jobs often as patronage jobs, a lot of corruption. Corruption might've infused the force from the get-go because young men are a nice place to put a lot of patronage roles um, and also a lot of places for regime protection. So you got a lot of roles that were purchased often that corruption had to go up in a kind of pyramidical scheme where you buy your job and you have to push it up, the money up to the top. Um, that builds norms of an extractive state right into the policing structure. So before you look at what are the problems of police, you have to look at the, the structure of the governance of the state, how these police form. And the US, by the way, really falls in between these two. Our democracy came at the same time as our state. Um, we had extremely corrupt policing in our municipalities. The machine-controlled police um, were big places for patronage hires, and the southern police, you know, the, the issues there are well known for upholding a privileged uh, structure um, and the original functions of police um, in terms of protecting power holders in the south uh, are well known. So um, when your police are seen as symbols of a state that is primarily predatory or extractive or highly unequal, it's really hard to build trust. And policing depends on trust. It depends on community trust to just tell the police what the problems are among other things, because we know that the police really can't find out what the problems of crime are 
frequently and unless the community tells them. Um, but if you're the first rung on a patronage ladder, or it's really about a political party gaining power, um, these jobs are going to certain people who, who, whose goals are not about gaining the trust of their community, their goals are or elsewhere. Or if the government itself is tied to organized crime or the government, governance system itself is corrupt, the police may just be a portion of that whose job is really about regime protection or protecting um, a portion of that regime. So if you have a force which, you know, like a lot of forces, 10% really good people and incorruptible, 80% are going to go whichever way the institution goes, and 10% really care a lot about power and, and might be particularly willing to use violence to do that, the, the norms of the institution that shape those 80% have a lot to do with the governance norms um, and the criteria by which the governance norms are set. So you can try to fix the policing problem, but really you need to start with the norms of the state and reorient, reorienting the structure of, of government in which the policing uh, structure sits. And I'll just stop there. Thank you very much, that was great. Um, over to, to you, Lawrence. I would agree with everything Rachel said and perhaps try to focus on just some of the dimensions that she emphasized, uh, particularly because the idea of evidence-based policing as advertised for the seminar uh, depends on knowledge, which itself depends on literacy. So I would like to emphasize the role of education, uh, if not so much a cause uh, by its absence, uh, a cause of police problems uh, around the world, um, global south and to some extent global north. Um, but the broader issues of enlightenment with respect to uh, rational analysis of cause and effect and the ever present um, battle over things like vaccines, um, uh, treatments for various diseases, uh, which uh, cause as much controversy in some cases more uh, than police do in uh, certain contexts of uh, global South uh, nations. And to the extent that the battle over use of systematic and scientific evidence in designing police strategies, in trying to minimize the use of force that police deploy um, in the United States or in South Africa, to the extent that research is part of the solution, um, it faces anti-scientific attitudes as part of the problem. And those scientific or anti-scientific attitudes are highly linked to uh, not just illiteracy, but even to educational levels that are minimal and dominated by um, the uh, authority structure of knowledge, uh, believing things to be true based on who tells you it's true rather than through independent thought. And the challenge for police institutions in this context is that many police officers in the global north and the global south are uh, very committed to policing by experience, by emotion, by um, issues around respect for police and challenges to police power. 
uh, rather than uh, trying to approach policing as a public health issue in which the primary purpose is prevention. Uh, the, the primary methods have to do with understanding uh, epidemiology of violence problems and how that epidemiology informs interventions that can be tested through rigorous trials using random assignment in many cases, uh, but in any event, trying to identify causal relationships uh, rather than working with uh, spurious um, and prejudiced uh, assumptions in many cases uh, that uh, target um, uh, vulnerable groups, not always minorities, uh, certainly women aren't minorities, uh, but they are very often disadvantaged uh, by police in both global North and South. And to the extent that the, um, the problem of education pervades things like birth rates and indeed gender ratios uh, with uh, more deaths of, of young female babies, uh, education seems to be a master variable for uh, building the kinds of societies uh, on principles of equality and human rights that we would all like to see. But I would concur with Rachel that we've got to get to having those kinds of societies as the foundation for having the police that we want for such a world. Thank you very much, Lawrence. And now over to Zeander. Great. Uh, so good evening, everyone, from a very warm and balmy uh, Cape Town in South Africa. Um, if you'll allow me to, um, I'm going to be a little bit uh, philosophical and a little less practical in my answer to this question, because I think this one question asks a lot of other larger framing questions, too. Um, so very much like Rachel, I found it really interesting to think about this, uh, this question and to come up with a succinct answer, because both of the terms overseas and global south in the title of this panel discussion and in the question um, that's just been posed aren't actually terms that I often use to describe South Africa, our neighboring countries, uh, or the work that I do on, uh, uh, on crime and violence prevention uh, at an academic institution. So in working through this particular question and through those terms of what the main causes of uh, police-related problems in the global South are, I found it much more useful to start at the very origin of policing institutions, which is of course colonialism and thinking about how, if at all, police institutions have changed as much as the societies they operate in have. Of course, I can't speak to every country um, overseas or in the global south, but the two countries I've written about uh, and researched, namely Brazil and South Africa, both have similar histories of colonialism, slavery, racism, racial and racial capitalism that depended on, that depended on enforcement by police forces. Those same police forces or institutions worked for hundreds of years to suppress and repress liberation movements. They upheld uh, fascist and dictatorial regimes, and they practiced a form of policing that continuously reminded people of their place in their country's social and economic order. Much of that is true for many other countries like Brazil and South Africa, and that is precisely why policing in those countries is problematic at best. The history of violence and brutality is also often the basis for the lack of legitimacy that police institutions face um, in this sort of nebulous overseas and global South. And as Johnny Steinberg uh, describes the policing situation in South Africa in the early 2000s, barely a decade after the formal end of apartheid, 
many South Africans did not give their consent to being policed by the newly minted South African Police Service and rather resentfully learned to live with those uh, police officers in their communities, occasionally calling on them when harm was perpetrated or disputes needed settling. So that history, that colonial history of policing that facilitated exploitation, brutality, and propped up brutal regimes is also the source of an ongoing lack of accountability within police institutions. Legal policing uh, reforms, such as the repeal of the uh, legislation that gave the police in Kenya and Nigeria their mandates and their replacement with legislation focused on community policing and human rights have had a limited effect on changing this. A very recent and painful reminder of these limits um, has been the NSAR's popular movement in Nigeria against police brutality and corruption, as well as the harsh, and, uh, the harsh police and military enforcement of COVID-19 pandemic restrictions in Angola, Uganda, Kenya, Brazil, Mexico, Peru, India, and other countries. Across 34 African countries surveyed by the public, Apollian, uh, public opinion polling think tank, mouthful, um, called Afrobarometer, both before and after 2020, a trend of declining levels of trust in the police and increasing levels of, of uh, perceived corruption has been observed. Much of what is problematic about the police has also been the cause of popular discontent, and that has placed citizens at odds with the police on their street and in their communities time and time again. And it bears mentioning that the global social and, and economic shocks of the last two decades, never mind the last two years, have only worsened what already existed in many countries. So those unresolved issues of, uh, of the past haunting police institutions in post-colonial societies uh, routinely manifest in a lack of accountability, a distinct lack of political will to end police brutality and police violence, and instead the weaponization of the police against the people. And lastly, also to an ever wider rift between citizens and police institutions with a sometimes tenuous uh, claim to legitimacy. So I'll stop there uh, in my sort of opening remarks and I, I look forward to um, a conversation around uh, addressing these issues. Thank you very much, Sander. <clears throat> well, we've we've begun to unpack quite a complex question and with complex causes and big causes. Um, so now turning to round two, where you have to turn that around <laughs> and look at how we might go about addressing police problems. So back to you, Rachel. Um, sure. So uh, we actually know quite a lot about what works to do better policing. At least we know quite a lot in the global north. A lot of that has to do with Lawrence's work actually over decades to codify knowledge and slowly put it together, um, research he's done or research he's catalyzed. Um, and so while we know a lot about uh, hot spots, hot heads, uh, all things like this, uh, how to get it done is the issue. How do you get police um, who often don't want to accept this science, um, uh, want to focus on more um, uh, rule of thumb rather than uh, kind of statistically based methods and so on, um, to accept it and implement it? That, that's really the issue, whether it's kind of a cultural norm within the department or whether it's a political issue or a governance issue, um, how, how to get the evidence taken up is a real problem. Um, I started with trust and I want to start with that again because vast quantities of research suggest that trust is so essential because controlling crime requires public support. In the US and UK, 
upwards of about 90% of the crimes people fear most, rape, homicide, things like this, require public tips to solve. It's not as if the police are there catching folks in flagrante all the time. But what's interesting is you, your question had been, what, what, does, um, what achieves better police? Better policing is hard to say because um, what br- the metric about bringing down crime is not necessarily uh, what, what builds trust. Um, people feel more trust based on respect and fairness, procedural matters. Tracy Mears at Yale has done a lot of work on this kind of procedural policing. Respect and fairness doesn't necessarily bring down crime immediately, but it does bring about trust. Trust is also enhanced by uh, recruiting a force that's more diverse, that, that looks more like the community, sorry, I shouldn't say more diverse, that looks more like the community it serves. Um, but diversity doesn't necessarily affect police violence, or at least might hit a tipping point. But so there, there are a lot of different metrics that are pretty nuanced in whether they, they affect policing and make it better. Um, you know, women in law enforcement, more women does seem to result in more trust and less corruption. Um, but there, th- that's a pretty small number of studies, Lawrence and so and Powell might have done, um, Jay Powell might have done more than I've seen. But Better is a pretty big category. Um, but if you're looking at trust that has a lot to do with procedural measures, things like respect and fairness, even if you're um, actually ending up arresting people, then you can do things that, that work, but you have to have a policing agency that wants to use focused deterrence, that wants to use hotspot policing, that wants to use um, methods of statistical analysis to um, focus on the small percentage of people that commit the vast majority of crime and the small number of places it tends to happen. Um, Getting police to make these changes uh, has to do a lot with, again, the structure of society. I'm sorry, I go back to this a a lot. Um, And that has to do with how much crime there is. When you've got a moment of low crime, you can tend to get more reform. Um, That's what we saw in the United States. It's what we see in other countries as, as well. But often the first move goes to the criminals. So when you start getting high, num- high levels of crime and it starts touching the people with the most voice in society, politicians are pushed to act. And often the way that they act is that the middle class or the people with the most, vote, most voice, depending on the structure of society, vote for more repression. Um, they vote for more law and order, mano dura, and so on. So what you need is either in a moment of low levels of violence and crime, or at a moment where there's high violence and crime and people are paying attention for a social movement to say, actually, mano dura is going to make the situation worse. Um, Reams of research suggests that more police brutality is going to lead to more violence and crime, locking up mass numbers of youth hardens gangs, helps criminals learn from each other and so on. Nobody cares about the statistics. I've done years of my life was working in the political sphere. You don't convince people in politics through statistics. So you really need sort of a social movement to get people to um, change their minds. But if you can get that social movement and get people to vote for different policies or put pressure on politicians for different policies, and then those politicians actually care about hiring the technocrats to um, to do different work, then you can get change. And then comes the decisions about what to do. And this is where so much of Lawrence's work suggests there are all these policies that can work. And, and reform often gets bogged down here over um, because of unions, um, things about firing and so on. And, and these are hard questions. Um, 
Some places uh, decide to fire large, large numbers of their policing and police, and, and that can work. Actually, there's uh, credibility behind that. It can also lead to large numbers of police going into criminal gangs. Um, a lot of that has to do with what happens after you decide to fire or decide not to fire large numbers, which is about accountability and follow up. Um, Colombia fired um, in the mid 90s, large, large numbers of its police to try to clean up, but then had almost no accountability and follow up. And, and the police just reorganized in another kind of corrupt cycle. Whereas in the Republic of Georgia, they fired large numbers of police and then had very stringent um, accountability in which uh, people on the customs shift, for instance, customs and border was particularly problematic um, as they often are. Um, if there was any case of corruption found, the whole shift would be fired. So they held each other accountable. But then you started to move toward more, um, more authoritarian sorts of governance and you had other problems like overfilling jails and so on that led to, um, to, to a different sort of problem. So these things, uh, it's not about one way or the other. It's about finding this easy middle and paying a lot of attention to the stats and what's going on. Um, and the public tends to lose interest. So you have to keep keep at it with watchdog organizations and so on that are paying a lot of attention. The other thing I'll say is that police reform really can't be all stick and no carrot. Um, there is no organization that I've ever seen as good as police organizations and slow walking reforms, um, whether it's willful subversion, whether it's half-hearted implementation, um, deep reform really requires police to accept change or to want change. Um, they can't be the enemy. And, um, and they really shouldn't be the enemy. I mean, even in the countries where the police are incredibly violent and brutal, they often are also the target of a huge amount of brutality. Um, and I think it's really important for activists and reformers to, to recognize this. I started my career doing PhD research in Indonesia, working on um, police brutality and interviewing real low level police. And, and they almost wept during my interviews because they were forced by higher, first of all, they were living in just God awful conditions, just, you know, rat infested, vermin infested, just really disgusting. And they're young men and they're away from their families. They're often not much older than kids themselves. They're being forced to shake down people because they have to pass the money on up. They're often getting brutalized by people above them, um, often quite, quite violently. Um, you know, these are not happy people and they're passing that on to others in the community. Um, it, a little bit of understanding of the situations that they are in. I, I was stunned at how much information I got out of them just by showing a little empathy uh, for their situation. Um, and so uh, understanding what they need to make their daily lives better is important. Hans Tuck, who is a scholar in America in the 70s, found that when, in the US, when police were afraid but couldn't admit it, those were the police that were most brutal. And um, I think it is likely that similar forces psychologically exist uh, all over the world. That seems to me a likely psychological uh, reality, although I haven't seen that kind of work. Certainly I have seen cross-country work that suggests that where populations are armed and murder rates are high, police are more brutal. And that correlation suggests that whether it's that police are scared or that populations give their police more latitude to use force when they know that the, the population is is violent, one or the other or both, um, you're getting more brutal police when their jobs are in fact more dangerous or feel more dangerous to them or are ginned up as dangerous by police training and so on. All of those things suggest that trying to find ways as reformers that we can work with police 
and help them solve the problems that are in their daily lives so that they can then do a better job. That 80% that really wants to do a better job, but they're not gonna stick their necks out and lose their job over it um, is the best way to move on the how of reform. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Rachel. Lawrence, over to you now. Let me take Zianda's point about the colonial origins of um, most uh, of the Global South countries that this seminar should be talking about. And the uh, important implication of colonialism that is probably overlooked uh, about uh, the role of the police in protecting the public from harm because that never was the role of the colonial police. The colonial police were there to protect the colonial um, entrepreneurs who were making money out of um, these countries, uh, who had communities of managers uh, to protect uh, and who had public order issues to worry about in the main streets of the big cities um, to the point where um, basically the model that the British police handed over in India, where I've spent a lot of time in the past decade, the model they handed over um, was described as fire brigade policing. That the police spent all their time in the station houses unless they had to go out to accompany VIPs um, on particular journeys. And if there was a riot, they would go out as a fire brigade. But with respect to the idea that we have in the global north of picking up a phone and dialing a three digit number, and the police are going to send a police car. Um, that just was never a kind of customer service model that I've seen colonial police forces develop in the decades since the end of colonization. Why is that important? I think it's important very much for police legitimacy because there's not even a kind of pretense that we are here to serve the public. The emphasis in the officer corps, uh, such as the Indian Police Service, which is chosen by competitive examination from hundreds of thousands of applicants, and they appoint 150 new police chiefs every year uh, <clears throat> who will spend the next 30 years in that command of 2 million constables, most of whom uh, are, are terribly paid and um, not well treated, uh, depending on the state in India. But What's fairly common across India is the um, slow transition from a reactive fire brigade, stay in the police station model, uh, living in the police station, theoretically without any days off, 365 days a year, um, but not uh, until very recently, routinely doing patrols uh, of the kind that Robert Peel envisioned for the London police uh, before the Indian police service was even created um, with the idea that you would protect the public through the utilitarian uh, theories of deterrence and crime prevention uh, in the Peelian principles as they've been translated down the years was more important than punishment. So this is not what we know from colonial policing and one way to um, perpetuate uh, as uh, Ziana was saying, one way to perpetuate the lack of legitimacy of a colonial police force is to have uh, the indigenous population take it over and operate it in exactly the same way. Um, what 
that raises is this idea that uh, certainly became very current after the murder of George Floyd, uh, much more stick than carrot, of course, uh, with the idea of not only defunding the police, but as Alex Vitale's book said, uh, the end of policing. Um, so there's two issues there. One is, um, can we imagine uh, a high crime society like the United States or um, potentially like many parts of India um, getting by without a police force uh, and, and by the same token, without the army coming in and doing what the British army did in London uh, after three days of rioting, which was to shoot to death 300 to 700 people. The, the count was never very precise. Uh, but Peel, among others, said, we don't want the, the British army uh, treating the British people as the enemy. Um, whereas in the colonial terms, uh, that, that was a kind of confrontation. And actually, one of the things that changed Gandhi's whole approach to independence in India was the slaughter of Indian um, constables in, in a police station in, in the north of India um, in the early 1920s. Um, what is it that you can do with a former colonial police system, which has now persevered uh, 70 years or more in most places? And the answer might be drawn from some success stories in which not by firing police officers, but by making a gradual transition, as in Northern Ireland from the Royal Ulster Constabulary, 95% Protestant, um, pretty strong anti-Catholic attitudes. Um, it's now a, um, I think a 55% Protestant organization. It's called the Police Service of Northern Ireland. And it managed through the guidance of uh, um, current chancellor of Oxford University, uh, experienced diplomat and civil servant, <coughs> who built a, uh, a strategic plan for uh, slowly making a transition from an old police force to a new police force, uh, a police force that previously had been the colonial police force of Ireland with Great Britain colonizing Ireland and ruling by force, and which became uh, a police force for Northern Ireland with all of its internal conflicts and disputes, but one that was dedicated to promoting peace to the extent possible given uh, lingering anger over uh, previous violence of uh, at least 30 years leading up to the Easter agreements. What the police service of Northern Ireland did doesn't seem to be much by way of, uh, of former colonial policing in uh, the global south, but it's been echoed in Camden, New Jersey, where a pretty uh, brutal city police force uh, was absorbed by a very enlightened county police force that uh, was led by a chief who promoted Hippocratic policing and trying to emphasize the minimization of harm and not to have police cause more harm than they were trying to uh, prevent, but all with a very proactive public health intervention model that is aimed at making the protection of the public its primary purpose. And I don't think for the most part, colonial uh, police forces have made the transition into protecting the public as opposed to protecting the VIPs. And a good part of the reason for that is the VIPs who are in charge of the police and who appoint the police leaders. And why would they want to give up 
the kind of privilege that the colonial masters had. Um, and and in, but in, in some parts of India, the, the idea that the um, Maharaja, the local potentate who had been eliminated by uh, the 1947 independence uh, was replaced uh, not by some um, Indian elected official, but actually by the police themselves, uh, and certainly in terms of certain corruption flows of, of money from criminals. Uh, it had gone to the Maharaja and now it was going to the police. So this, this whole transition from the colonial period to the modern period, um, I think is incomplete. It may have some opportunities in it for redesigning or reinventing a police service. I don't see any countries in the global South that are talking about um, making a gradual transition to build a new kind of police service to replace the old kind of police service. But I think more than the specifics of strategy and tactics for evidence-based policing uh, is this question of a political strategy for building a new police institution as an enlightenment project uh, distinct from uh, uh, a force of oppression for extracting large amounts of money that came out of the British colonies and which built lovely buildings all over England that we're still enjoying, but um, which in some sense we need to make reparations for by having, as we now have this year, increasing numbers of students from uh, those same countries, which leaves us in a, a position as we think about um, a plan and how a plan for the different contexts, depending on levels of liter literacy, the kind of economy, the extent of the digital and transportation infrastructure. And, and even reforms like all women's police stations in India, which resulted according uh, to recent research in women going to police stations being told that their crime was gendered and so they have to go 20 kilometers to another police station that was for women. Uh, so with, with all good intentions, they made it much more difficult for women as victims of crime um, in, in trying to um, if you will, modernize by being more inclusive or, or more sensitive to those issues. I don't think piecemeal solutions like that are as likely to produce a fundamental change in the mission and values of a police institution as building something side by side. And many nations have multiple police services now. And so one policy I hope will get more consideration uh, from the various donor nations supporting police development in overseas countries. One, one idea is to try to build a, a new police service side by side with whatever police force there is, and ultimately to make the transition from a police force where you could not hire new people and just let the ones who are working there retire. So without firing lots of people who then become part of the problem, you, you let them continue and have that side of policing slowly disappear and build the more trustworthy, uh, supportive, um, uh, polite, and considerate police culture that is much closer to what you see uh, in Britain and, and Europe today. Thanks very much, Lawrence. Now, over to you to say that. Great. Um, so, I mean, firstly, I have to say, um, I think Liam has obviously done a great job of uh, pulling this panel together because I'm going to hit on a lot of the notes um, that both Rachel and, and Lawrence 
uh, have spoken about in, in uh, sort of slightly more detail. Um, so given the main causes of police-related problems that I identified in my first answer, I think it's useful to think of ways of addressing these problems um, as those that exist um, to work within the structure of police institutions and those that exist outside of those structures. So firstly, within police institutions, there's obviously a fairly large body of evidence in criminology and economics that uh, demonstrates that policing um, has a deterrent effect. In other words, criminal behavior is uh, generally reduced by increases in policing presence, either through larger deployments or increased intensity of uh, police presence. So I know that in many countries in the global north and elsewhere, uh, crime levels have been on a downward trend for many years, and that often has nothing to do specifically with uh, police presence, but I'm specifically, um, or yeah, just sort of more pointedly referring to those countries that still struggle with high rates of, uh, of violent crime. So it's for this reason and many others that a country like South Africa invests heavily uh, in visible policing strategies with police officers in vehicles and on foot in public space, as well as the collection of crime statistics for trend analysis. So in South Africa, again, in other countries, the popular strategy, um, of course, of identifying uh, hotspots is also often used. And across several of those countries, when police officers and communities work together to fill public space with outdoor markets or other large neighborhood activities in previously dangerous uh, and deserted areas, crime levels eventually uh, decrease. In this way, um, the, the, that elusive practice of community policing that so many police institutions say they do, but not all actually do, also serves as a deterrence uh, to crime as it brings communities into closer contact with the police and facilitates improved relations. It builds broken or non-existent trust because of colonial history, and it opens channels of communication that didn't exist before. Uh, interestingly, evidence from the, UK, from the US and the UK has also found that community policing is more effective at improving perceptions uh, of police legitimacy than actually reducing crime. Um, so not to, belabor the, not to belabor the point, but to me, this is at least a clear sign of the distinction uh, that sometimes exists between what community policing is uh, and the practice thereof uh, in the global north and in the global south and across geography. Also interestingly, in countries with more fragile uh, security infrastructure or settings, um, evaluations that have been led by Robert Blair, uh, Sabrina Karim, and uh, Benjamin Morse in Liberia, as well as Jasper Cooper in uh, Papua New Guinea, have found that increasing community uh, police relations and interactions can lead to a rise in reporting crimes, particularly from those who are disadvantaged by uh, traditional forms of dispute uh, re uh, resolution. In Liberia, so-called confidence uh, patrols in rural communities um, did little to increase trust in the police as a whole, but they did improve knowledge of the law, they increased crime reporting, and they reduced the, in the incidence of simple assault um, and domestic violence. In Papua New Guinea, uh, a, a permanent uh, community police officer was introduced into villages in rural Bergenville, uh, where previous police contact had been limited. Uh, this police presence led to increased demand for both police and traditional uh, dispute resolutions with uh, women actually preferring uh, police presence and reduced community um, perceptions of the prevalence of crime. Lastly, in this realm of working within police uh, institutions, the composition of police teams may sometimes influence the ability of the police to respond to the uh, needs of marginalized group, especially women, um, but has its limitations um, as Lawrence mentioned earlier. 
Efforts to also better integrate uh, female officers into the police service in many countries have ranged from purely cosmetic to more strategic or operational approaches. Um, and such as in Papua New Guinea, research there found that in the introduction of a permanent police presence led to increased crime reporting by women, especially when the police officer on duty was female. So building on, uh, on semi-experimental evidence uh, from India, and it also found a, a rapid expansion in all women police stations. Uh, this, was, this led to a, a 22% uh, increase in the, reportings, uh, in the reporting of crimes against women. Uh, and currently two ongoing studies um, are testing the effect of providing specialized training and resources specifically to, uh, to female officers. So those are, uh, again, just you know, some sort of quick reflections um, on evidence that's been collected by JPAL as well as uh, researchers through the EGAP network. Um, and there's plenty of literature that's available um, uh, on these sort of methods. But there is also a healthy um, sort of literature bank um, on, on the other uh, sort of example of, of work that I'd spoken about earlier. And that's, that's about working outside of uh, police institutions. So I work day-to-day um, -day on a project uh, in South Africa, particularly aimed at violence prevention that really has very little to do uh, with the police. And that's for uh, multiple reasons that I won't necessarily um, delve into right now, but uh, based on, a, on, again, a large amount of evidence um, that shows that uh, violence prevention that takes a long-term um, look uh, at, at essentially what's happening in, in a lot of communities, um, and actually proposes a, a cognitive behavioral therapy inspired approach uh, to reducing violence, um, sometimes in schools and sometimes with out of school youth. So studies uh, in, in uh, Honduras, El Salvador and Guatemala, uh, school-based um, studies have shown that uh, having mindfulness practices um, and psychosocial support available to students who are in communities with high levels of, of crime, particularly violent crime, helps to disrupt uh, cycles of violent behavior or antisocial behavior that can morph into uh, larger crime trends uh, in the future. Similarly, in Liberia, um, a study with, uh, with young men uh, between the ages of uh, 18 to 26, uh, working at reintegrating uh, young men who you know, were involved in a lot of illicit activities, um, that has found uh, over a period of time um, that cognitive behavioral therapy inspired approaches, as well as in some uh, circumstances, cash transfers, um, allow uh, those young men to move from illicit activity to more formal uh, activities that are socially integrated um, and allow them to, uh, in many ways, form productive uh, parts of society uh, in a way that their previous lives uh, would not have allowed them to do. And lastly, um, a piloted program, again, that I'm working on uh, in South Africa and a lot of communities that are affected by uh, gang violence also is trying to look at the impact of uh, psychosocial support within schools um, and particularly within the context of COVID um, that has uh, really led to a large amount of uh, grief and trauma um, uh, or sort of incidents of grief and trauma because of uh, uh, children losing parents to, uh, to the pandemic but also because of disrupted school cycles um, that have obviously severely affected uh, psychosocial uh, relationships as well. So there, there again, is, is a lot um, that I think is being done and can be done uh, within police institutions, but also within communities um, that, are, that is meant to, uh, in, in many, many ways, change our ideas 
um, of what, uh, whether it's uh, police and community relations or community relations um, that reduce the need that for, the, for the police uh, to actually be in communities themselves. Great, thank you very much. And thank you to all three of you. Really fascinating stuff and much we can uh, further unpack through Q&A. So I'm gonna uh, jump straight into the first question, um, which is from Rebecca, a master's student at the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of, Tor of Toronto. And the question is, what are some, success some examples of successful or unsuccessful community policing initiatives slash indigenous policing systems what makes them successful or unsuccessful? And how are they different from colonial policing systems? Um, I'll give Zeander a little bit of time to catch her breath. And then so I'll go to Lawrence, then we'll go to Zeander, then to, to Rachel. Well, in the global north, uh, there's precious little evidence that community policing uh, is effective in reducing crime. Mixed evidence about improving um, trust in the police. One of the experiments we did in Houston in the early 1980s showed that if the police go into neighborhoods knocking on doors, introducing themselves, saying, we're the new police officers in this beat area, we just want to get to know you. Um, Follow-up surveys we did showed that uh, for the white um, American-born residents uh, whose doors they knocked on, they, they were very happy to know that the police were there and to meet the police. For recent immigrants from Vietnam and Mexico, they were terrified. And they uh, had no idea why the police were knocking on their door, but they knew it wasn't good, at least given uh, the perspective that they had. And um, the, the lesson we tried to learn from this is that this idea of community ties and building communications between police and members of the community um, may be a, a, a kind of um, uh, what was the children's show with the, the we know the people in the neighborhood um, and um, the uh, the American um, uh, generation of children raised to believe that neighborhoods are benign places where everybody's nice and interacts with each other. Uh, not Sesame Street, but the same generation. Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers. Thank you, Rachel. Um, I don't think that we can build community policing programs around the idea of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. We've got lots of communities with lots of conflict, with lots of violence, and lots of reasons for people to be afraid of each other. And to um, promote that particular view of crime prevention in the absence of good experimental evidence uh, of it in the United States, as many former United States police professionals do, because they have a consensus that community policing sounds good and, and ought to be um, pushed, um, <clears throat> is, is a problem, especially because it bundles together lots of different tactics and strategies. And what we ought to be doing is taking those apart and uh, thinking separately about each one of those, just like you might have different strategies and tactics for public health that might involve water, might involve sanitation uh, uh, facilities uh, in addition to clean water and so on. Um, uh, we, we have, I think, very good reasons to believe that there can be successes from police um, trying to uh, promote peace among warring factions and restorative justice in particular at the level of the individual offender and the criminal um, in uh, both traditional societies uh, like the um, 
practice of the Maori in New Zealand, on which the Australian models that Heather Strang and I tested in uh, Canberra in the 1990s, and then on in London and other English settings. Uh, the evidence there is very strong that under a, a well-prepared setting, uh, police officers promoting dialogue between the uh, victims and their family members and the offenders and their family members uh, about a specific crime. And uh, that uh, uh, gives everybody a, a stakeholder reason to be there because they're all affected by the crime uh, through their relationship either to the victim or the offender. And everybody tends to come together um, uh, in ways that were originally modeled by indigenous uh, customs in uh, New Zealand and, and then uh, spread into the global north. So it's a really good example of what turns out to be under rigorous testing in 12 randomized controlled trials, a very effective practice um, that sadly uh, has lots of evidence, but no support. It doesn't fit into the rubric of what people go around sloganeering about community policing, e even though in a way it's a way, it's a building of community by the police uh, that uh, not only uh, prevents uh, crime uh, by the offender in the future, but also reduces trauma and serves as a kind of cognitive behavioral therapy for the victim and the victim's uh, family. So we do have continued problems with the disjunction between evidence and practice. But if you ask me for a success story in something that involves the police working with the community, that's the best thing I can point to. And um, I don't think it's been um, picked up in even in countries in Africa where those kinds of meetings have a very long tradition. Um, but in fact, if, if you read some of the literature from the mid 20th century, um, the police in effect replaced all that with the courts, with the magistrates, with the prisons. And it became the British justice rather than community justice. Uh, now that these communities are no longer British, it, maybe it's time to go back to what was working probably pretty well in, in terms of keeping the peace and trying to prevent blood feuds that go on for years, if not generations. Thank you, Lawrence. Uh, Rachel, yes. Sure. So I'll just add a few. Lawrence covered the gamut pretty well, but I'll just add a few things. So First of all, as Lawrence was saying, community policing is really one of these catch-all terms. I mean, I remember going around Chile and Colombia and all over Latin America, and everyone said they were doing community policing. Everyone was doing something different. Most of them weren't doing anything even vaguely uh, similar to what the evidence, uh, the, the small bit of evidence that we have on community policing talks about in terms of the tactics. Um, so it, it's one of these terms that, especially once you get down to implementation, uh, as opposed to what community policing say they're doing. So there's the, what are, what are the tactics? Then what do they claim that they're doing? And then what are they actually doing on the street? You lose so much at each level that it's really uh, not particularly useful, um, even the little bit that it was in the first, first place. Um, and and um, second of all, I would say that your question had to do with uh, indigenous policing systems. Here I get really quite concerned because I think Lawrence was talking about indigenous reconciliation practices, and there is good evidence on that. Um, I know more of the conflict world on that than the policing world, but the two are somewhat similar, um, that uh, reconciliation practices that bring um, the two sides together in these ways that bring the community together um, do, have, do have a track record. Indigenous policing practices lean very quickly into vigilantism. 
And um, if you think policing is bad, vigilantism gets worse really quickly. Um, and it gets worse even when you're talking about groups that look like neighborhood watch or what have you that um, appear fairly benign in, in the global South context. Um, once you start uh, empowering people to carry out their own justice, even the groups that start out fairly um, positive, and some do, some definitely start out desirous to protect their communities. Um, the people attracted to those jobs uh, turn. There are groups that are interested in infiltrating those. And we see this even in, um, even in the global North, Minneapolis had a big defund the police movement after uh, George Floyd. You quickly saw a good guy vigilantes come in to protect the uh, protesters who didn't want the police anywhere near them. Very quickly, you got drug dealers coming in to infiltrate those vigilante uh, or those good guy groups and then vigilantes who nobody knew who they were um, armed because it's the US context and we have millions of guns running around. So um, this uh, trajectory you see very quickly in, in countries that have indigenous policing traditions in Nigeria, for instance, what you tend to see is um, good guy groups that, that um, get infiltrated, they get used by political parties um, to carry out their missions. And then pretty quickly, you just have a lot of different armed groups. And one thing we know about multiples of armed groups is that they make situations more violent and, and worse. I also just wanted to put just two fingers on, I can see from the questions, a lot of people are frustrated um, by two things that we're doing. One is our continual, uh, all of us talking about colonialism. And second, by all of us talking at this very high level of trust and the structures of the state and so on. Let me just say the reason we're talking about colonialism, and I, I will speak for myself, but I think that my uh, fellow speakers will agree. First of all, it's not actually that old, depending on your country. It's from 20 to 60 years old or 70 years old. That's well within the lifetime of many people. But equally important, many of the structures are exactly the same or very, very similar um, because the organizations of policing, as Lawrence said, really fit the new governments that took over after colonialism. And a lot of those regimes didn't wanna give up those structures that protected them. And so even though we're in a post-colonial period, the structures of policing lasted. And so we're talking about those structures because they're similar or the same as those structures that, that existed before. And so we're, we're dealing with those structures. And why are we talking about these really high level abstract things rather than just getting down to basics and telling you what works? And I think the reason is that um, you know, Peter Drucker, the management scientist, said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I think within um, policing organizations, we can tell you what works, but like the community policing phrase, um, it will then get distorted through the sort of funhouse mirror of what police actually want to do and what politicians in these countries want to do. And so if you don't start with a policing structure that's intended to protect the people, that's a pretty big place to diverge. And if you're not starting with um, a culture that has an intent, that's what you're hoping for at the end, a lot of these police practices that are technocratic can get distorted along the way. And so if we tell you, you know, use these reconciliation practices, there's good evidence. Well, what police structure that exists to extract um, money from the people to pass it up to higher ups is going to implement these reconciliation practices? You know, so that's why we're getting at these higher level questions is because the, the technical evidence base matters a lot, but 
you need a, a policing structure that wants to do them. And that's why Lawrence is saying, you know, you have to have a parallel police structure, maybe you're trying to come up with workarounds and reforms because, or um, Zianda is just saying, I'm moving away from policing altogether. You know, it, it's hard to get the existing structures to do the things that we know work, even though our evidence base is a little low. And I'll get off my soapbox. Hey, no, thank you very much, Zianda. Sure. Um, so, I mean, okay, look, spoiler alert, um, if anybody is in the comment section and they don't want to hear about colonialism, you should never read anything I've written. It is really, <laughs> it is just, it's such a huge part of, of, um, of understanding any, um, I think, uh, um, uh, you know, police institution, but particularly South Africa's, um, you know, through colonial era and apartheid era policing, uh, very much uh, hand in hand in, in terms of that. Um, and even now in, in, um, in democracy. Um, I think to, to answer the original question and to, to try and sort of give a very solid uh, example, um, both the example that, uh, that Lawrence gave and, and uh, that uh, Rachel also touched on, uh, particularly I think around um, what in South Africa were called street committees, um, as well as uh, imbis or, or sort of uh, uh, traditional dispute resolution uh, mechanisms. Those actually survived, you know, sort of long past um, uh, any kind of slightly post-colonial era um, and, and in many, many communities still exist today because of the fact that the, that the police and the SAPS uh, weren't present in communities except to brutalize anti-apartheid um, activists and to subjugate um, any sort of uh, uh, activism uh, in that sense. Uh, many communities still uh, you know, don't have the requisite sort of policing, basic policing uh, resources or infrastructure. So those two mechanisms uh, are, are still in place, and they're recognized actually by the uh, by in some form by the by the South African government and and uh, police service in terms of um, having created community policing forums uh, that are meant to be part and parcel um, really of of the way that the police operate uh, um, or at least law enforcement operates in South Africa. The very difficult um, nature of of those CPFs is that they've uh, also become highly politicized. Again, you know, if we're talking about uh, uh, sort of institutional culture and police culture, um, a, a lot of, of what we've been talking about still exists, even in the sort of best, um, best in, or well-intentioned ideas um, around kind of bringing indigenous uh, practices, uh, you know, forward into sort of modern day life. Um, and those, those CPFs, those street committees, those uh, sort of groups, um, either can become uh, vigilantes, they can have incredibly narrow purposes and they therefore can be somewhat successful or they become co-opted uh, by the police itself uh, and the, the sort of institution and culture around that. So I'm, I'm really sorry to the person who asked the original question, but there, there isn't uh, you know, a great sort of uh, answer that we can give, except to say that in, in multiple um, uh, communities and countries, uh, some form of these mechanisms that exist and there is a sort of mixed uh, uh, evidence or results uh, from their existence. Thanks, Sienda. Um, we've had, um, I'm gonna try and combine a couple of questions because, um, so one we've got from Maurizio Carrillo in Colombia, um, who's, who highlights that police reform is often tried, attempted when there's extremely high rates of organized crime and homicide and crime overall. Um, and Tim Heath in the Foreign and Commonwealth and Development Office puts a similar question about um, improving police reform can 
work to improve trust and legitimacy. But of course, we have the very other real world problems of crime um, and people want reductions in that. Uh, and he asked the question then, what's the evidence on improved trust leading to actual crime reduction? And how long does that causation take to show? Um, now, I'll go to uh, Lawrence, then Xander, then Rachel. It's um, hard to show that creating trust leads to greater compliance with the law on the part of those who have increased their trust uh, or respect for the police. Um, we uh, took one of the central tenets of this dimension of procedural justice theory into the analysis of uh, restorative meetings uh, for drunk drivers in Canberra, um, people over the prescribed limit through a very proactive system of um, detecting blood alcohol content among drivers, uh, which um, had uh, roughly 900 uh, people arrested. Half of them were diverted to a meeting with the police and the driver's friends, um, and the other half were prosecuted in court uh, in the usual way. The experiment showed that with the police officer leading this discussion, the trust in the police went up compared to the people who went to court and were prosecuted. And that was the offenders. But the offenders actually didn't have less offending after their trust in the police went up. They actually had more offending. So um, that's the closest thing to a direct test I know of with experimental evidence uh, that, that created the condition of increased trust uh, to see whether that would reduce uh, uh, criminal activity. And it went the other way. That's only one test. There could be many other tests, um, but I don't think the reason to create trust at the individual level in the police or to have people feel that the police treat them fairly uh, and effectively in protecting them from violence, I, I don't think the reason to create those feelings um, is necessarily to change the behavior of those individuals. We have to remember that most people in Britain, uh, somewhere between 10 and 20% would have contact of any kind with the police in a year, meaning that 80 to 90% had no contact, didn't talk to the police on the phone, didn't see a police officer on the street to talk to. There's just no interaction going on. Um, so why is it important for a country to have a high level of trust in its police as Britain tends to? And, the United States has had declining trust uh, since Michael Brown was killed by the Ferguson police in Missouri in 2014, uh, bottomed out in 2020 with George Floyd. It's coming back up with the threat to the police actually coming up and a 63% increase in police murdered in the United States last year uh, as part of a, a historic rise in homicide after this period of decline in crime and then the big jump in, in violence. Paradoxically, what we may be seeing is people trusting the police more because they see the police as putting themselves in harm's way, uh, just as the black voters in Minneapolis did, who overwhelmingly rejected the plan to abolish the police force and replace it with the Department of Public Safety. And approximately 75% of the voters in black neighborhoods voted against this proposal. 56% uh, of the total population voted against the proposal. But I don't think that would have happened had there not been this doubling in the number of shootings in Minneapolis in the year after George Floyd was murdered, 
and there had not been um, especially a, a concentration of increased murders in the African-American neighborhoods. So um, would the, the African-Americans in Minneapolis now trust the police more than they did before that happened? I, I don't think we have any data. Um, I do have quotes in a New Yorker story uh, interviewing George Floyd's friends right after he was murdered uh, when they first heard about the defunding the police uh, proposals and they were horrified because of the bad actors that they knew would fill the vacuum. And uh, as Rachel was describing it, that's uh, the kind of problem that you face if it's all stick and no carrot. And 30% of the police force left. Uh, so there's that many fewer officers in Minneapolis. There's that much less proactive effort to get um, people selling and, and carrying guns off the street. Um, what, what you get in terms of fear of crime that might drive up trust in the police as the thin blue line that protects us is a paradox insofar as we don't necessarily want to build trust that way. We would much rather build trust in the police by um, having a safer society and police getting credit for it. But if you look historically what happened in New York with an 85% drop in the homicide rate, 85% unprecedented from 1990 through the early 2000s, as the murder threat dropped, people's um, <clears throat> willingness to support the police dropped. And they, in effect, what do we need you for anymore? The problem's fixed. Uh, so this, these are very complicated relationships. And I still think that liberal democracies need to have trust and confidence in the form of governance that they have. So they will resist efforts like the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol. And we can avoid the loss of liberal democracy as an enlightened idea in the global north, all of which takes us not too far away from the global south, because so many of the countries, especially as we've seen in Latin America, are flip-flopping back and forth between um, pretty democratic to pretty autocratic situations. Think about Uruguay for the last 40 years, for example. And while they've been much happier under liberal democracy, uh, at least according to the official counts, the murder rate has been going up substantially since they lost their um, uh, authoritarian regime. Um, I would be the last person to say that the authoritarian regime is the solution. Um, but I would point out that having um, democratic freedoms and the um, changing view of the police in relation to how much crime there is, uh, is only a part of the, the, the chaos, not only of democracy, but of the modern economy and all of the disruptions, especially now with COVID that are going on. This is a very hard time for governance. And if we want to support the, the uh, sustainability of liberal democracy, I, I think we need to be thinking holistically, not just about the police, but about these other elements, and especially about how we can use both carrots and sticks to make policing safer as an occupation and to make the communities that they police safer in the face of an ever-growing number of guns, certainly up and down uh, the North and South American continents, but fortunately so far not in India. Not in Thanks, Lawrence. Uh, Zienda, over to you. 
Sure. Um, I mean, I think that that um, that there, you know, there's a, a relationship, obviously, that exists between uh, trust in the police and um, sort of their their mandate. But I think also importantly, um, you know, that that has many other uh, spillover effects um, in the way that that either the police operate or function or don't um, in many countries. Um, so, you know, as I mentioned earlier, with the um, NSARS uh, popular movement in Nigeria. Um, that was specifically around uh, brutality and corruption, um, around a, a kind of specialized uh, unit within Nigeria. Um, at, at a previous job that I worked at um, with Afrobarometer, uh, you know, we, we kind of looked back at, um, at survey data over 34 countries um, from about 2019 and 2020. Um, and really where you saw a lot of, um, or very high levels of, of distrust uh, in the police, or, you know, conversely put low levels of trust in the police, um, in many countries, once you actually dug deeper into that um, and sort of asked why and, and how that happened, the effects that that has have is that people don't, um, uh, you know, report crimes uh, or they feel like they have to bribe police officers to do their jobs um, and, you know, either investigate crimes or um, even sort of show up to, to collect evidence. And what that does is that it really sends a lot of, uh, you know, police uh, institutions into a kind of downward spiral where, you know, we, where a lot of societies then start to accept a kind of minimum level of crime, um, you know, because they believe the police, uh, you know, either won't investigate their crime or show up uh, or crimes against them. They simply don't bother uh, reporting um, sort of minor crimes or, or uh, certain incidences, um, especially in South Africa, uh, you know, multiple sort of surveys and inquiries um, have found that people just kind of, you know, who are victims of, of uh, minor uh, robberies or muggings just want their stuff back. And if they don't believe that the police will give them their stuff back, then they'll turn to, you know, to those groups, um, whether they're vigilante groups or others, that they believe will. Um, so, so this, a lack of trust really has multiple uh, sort of implications um, for how uh, police institutions are perceived, police themselves are seen to do their job or not do their job. Um, and that, that really uh, speaks to um, uh, either losses of confidence in the police or never being able to regain um, trust that, that could be there um, or should be there um, that simply, yeah, that simply dissipates. Thanks very much. Uh, Rachel, over to you. Um, I think Lawrence did a great job of really uh, ferreting out just, just how complex these statistical relationships are and how careful we need to be when talking about them. Um, when I was speaking of community trust, I was talking about what Zeanda is talking about, which is, um, can you get people who have information about a crime to report information on that crime? Um, because we know that that kind of information matters a lot. Some of the people with information on crime uh, tend to be people who have committed crimes, um, particularly with regards to homicide. The people who commit homicides, people who are victims of homicide are uh, very similar um, and, and tend to run in the same groups. That's why there's such a strong epidemiological connection between with that particular crime. Um, but they're not always similar. And so when you get to things like property crime and so on, you, you get bigger gaps between uh, victims or, you know, drunk driving, the victims of drunk driving versus or people who have information about it versus the offenders. So um, and then there's these really uh, difficult statistical relationships with things like um, with things like reporting and, and so on, where we all know that reporting often goes up when trust in police goes up. So crime goes up. Um, or it looks like it's going up when trust in police goes up because people bother to report. 
um, rape goes up, statistically speaking, when women get more empowered and start reporting rape. Does that mean rape really goes up? We have no idea because you can't tell. Um, and so it can be really hard to answer some of these questions. Um, one thing that does seem likely is that, is that police are a leading indicator of governance in general. Um, when people don't trust government, they're unlikely to trust police who are a very clear representation of the government in their lives. Um, when people don't trust police, they're also less likely to trust governments. There's also a vicious cycle between that. Bo Rothstein, who does work on the quality of governance indicators, or he used to, I don't know if Bo is still there, um, uh, has, has ferreted that out in, in Europe. Um, and so as one of the questioners wrote, um, when decline in institutions of government go down, which they're going down all over the world, we can expect um, police to lose trust. Um, and that's a problem. Um, but uh, the last thing I'll say is that one of the questioners talked about the gross misrepresentation of defund the police. That's true. I actually know um, the folks at the, who are behind the BLM movement who have actually done fabulous work in America, working with really in interesting and excellent um, uh, groups that know a lot about police to put together uh, efforts to put some meat on the bones of what they're asking for and um, ask for some much smarter things than the people in the street. The problem is very few people are spending their lives on that website, looking at the empirical evidence that they've put together. And a lot of people are looking at what's coming out of the protests and what's on um, the media and what keeps getting repeated in the news. Um, and that's the case anywhere in the world. And so you need to be real careful what your slogans are and how things get repeated. And um, the fact is that right now there's been a very antagonistic relationship set up that is not particularly helpful to the communities being policed. And now that we're seeing in America, at least a 30% rise in homicide last year, I think this year it's up again, 5% or so. And these are, these are historically huge rises, the once in a hundred years rise. Um, that's not hitting me. I'm an upper middle-class white lady. I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico though. And New Mexico is a very violent state um, and it's hitting a lot of my neighbors. Um, so, you know, when you, when you look at who is being harmed by these things, um, the activists on the ground who are advocating really do need to be aware of how the activism and the advocacy interacts with these extremely complex measures of things like trust, because the erosion of trust in our institutions that are caused by something like a defund the police mandate or a mantra is problematic. Thanks, Rachel. Lawrence, do you want to... Yeah, could I just build on that by saying that the idea of having other institutions and professions, especially mental health professions, deal with many of the problems that police don't really want to deal with, uh, is, it has been very attractive uh, for the last 20 years I've been listening to police leaders talk about it. And the experiments in New Mexico now, I don't know if they're, they're controlled experiments, but they're certainly trying to create systems whereby it's possible to send somebody to an incident with someone who is having mental health problems and who might be more violent if they confront a police officer than if they confront a mental health profession. That's a hypothesis. It's a very important hypothesis. It should be tested. There uh, are many other ways in which the incoming information about crime at a police call center could be processed um, through um, millions of prior such calls that would uh, help to sort 
who should be the first responder? Should it be a police officer? Should it be a mental health worker? Should it be uh, somebody else, maybe a neighborhood worker? It's possible that we could have a whole suite of things. <clears throat> and that really was the idea behind the Minneapolis proposal. But as Rachel said, if you present this as a form of punishment to the existing police professionals, it will be seen as an assault on their meaning of their lives and they will fight very hard against it. And many people who identify with what police do uh, will share that view. Um, and, and I think that it has been terribly unfortunate that the way in which the proposal to have alternative and diverse mechanisms of dealing with community safety issues has been translated into a let's get rid of policing, end of policing narrative, which preceded the defund the policing um, movement. I, I think that is uh, a, a challenge and that um, if it comes down to uh, get rid of police, get rid of schools because we don't like what they teach uh, about history um, or wh whatever uh, other challenges we can have to the institutions that create certainty and the foundations of liberal democracy, that may be one of the reasons trust in government is going down around the world because of this lack of confidence that the government can restore some sense of, of certainty, even in the global north. But I think it's even more important than uh, to think about why don't we do these kinds of alternative responses or even alternative proactive strategies for other institutions to be coordinated with the police um, working as partners, but not necessarily to think that we should get the police to do everything uh, instead of having a, a more differentiated uh, strategy um, in a culture that's eating strategy for breakfast. Great, yeah, thanks. Um, I've got a question which is going to take us a little bit outside the, the police ecosystem, because you, and you've all rightly suggested we need to, to do that, and it is how can we encourage social movements, um, particularly amongst middle class, upper class, but I think the question could be uh, expanded, um, with voting influence to change their mindsets towards showing force by police? Um, essentially, how do we get support for police reform in social movements? Um, a big question. We don't have the great much time. <laughs> um, so I'm going to go to Ziander um, and, and Rachel and then Lawrence, and then we'll wrap up for the evening. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really great question. And, um, you know, sort of broadly speaking, um, I, maybe Rachel and, and, uh, and Lawrence know more, but I, I don't necessarily know of, of uh, sort of kind of solid evidence that, um, or maybe from uh, controlled evaluations that might exist. Um, but I, But just sort of, Zoning in on the on the South African example, I think that in in many many ways um, a, a fair amount of of dysfunction within the police, as well as the last two years um, of an incredibly harsh lockdown in South Africa, um, have made South Africans uh, rethink um, you know their their thoughts on policing. Um, this these moments have also happened before um, with the with for example uh, the Marikana massacre in 2012. Uh, where 34 striking miners were um, were killed by the police, and that you know created a national reckoning around um, what what we want to see um, our police officers do in their day to day jobs, as well as the uh, as the roads must fall and fees must fall movements in 2015 and 2016 um, uh, that saw you know uh, students on campuses 
um, trying to sort of fight for fee reduction and decolonized uh, education. And again, that's that really brought to the fore the conversation around policing um, and and you know what people sort of perceive that to be, well, not even perceive it to be, but what what they actually want um, the police to do in terms of whether it is maintaining law and order or uh, sort of public order. So it's it's in and of themselves, I think that that in countries like South Africa, um, you know, where there is a fair amount of social unrest um, at any kind of uh, given point, that 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 can turn into social movements that make us question um, what it is, you know, we we want from the police um, or why police institutions exist in the way that they do, um, and and whether they have to change. Um, again, that's not a, a kind of neat uh, answer, but I I think in 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 many ways catalyzing um, or, or sort of working within energy um, of, of kind of um, catalyst events uh, around community safety, public safety, um, in the cases that I mentioned, economic and racial justice as well. Um, you know, they, they bring everyone to the table um, in, 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 you know, in discussing uh, what, a, what a future either with a, a sort of competent police service looks like one uh, beyond uh, policing uh, might look like as well. Thank you, Sandra. We've got a couple of minutes left. I think we've got time for Rachel for you to have a crack at that one. Sure. Um, so I think Erica Chenoweth at Harvard is probably the best uh, scholar on social movements. And she's found a couple of things, uh, Erica and, and Maria Stefan both. Um, Broad-based social movements have the most likelihood of succeeding, and broad-based matters because um, they need to have 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 uh, application across a polarized society. Often, um, policing happens in brutal in uh, violent places where you've got highly polarized societies. So, getting um, a lot of people all from one side, whether it's one side of a racial fissure, an economic fissure. Um, or a geographic fissure is much, much less helpful than getting a variety of people from across the society, because that shows that this is a um, problem that the governing structure has to deal with. It, it's not something that they can ignore because it doesn't affect their voting base, if it's a democracy or if it's an autocracy that they can ignore because um, it doesn't affect key parts of the uh, community. So broad-based is really important. To get broad-based, you need to have non-violence. Violence tends to scare away a lot of people from joining movements. Um, it makes them uh, terrified of joining. Um, it also makes them more militant. And it also is very important to have not, not to have violent flanks. This is something that's been changing in recent years. A lot more social movements have been happening. We're seeing unprecedented numbers of protests around the world. Um, but those protests have been much less successful than they used to be. Um, Erica's got really interesting data on this. And there's many reasons for this. One is that the autocrats are probably learning a lot. Um, but the other, it seems to be that the, the recent movements tend to have violent flanks that are getting allowed more. It takes a lot of discipline and a lot of training to maintain nonviolence. You really have to teach people that nonviolence is not about giving in. It's not about being kind of namby-pamby or um, turning the other cheek. It's actually a technique um, to win uh, broad-based support and also to um, make the regime 
look as bad as possible and to get defectors from the regime, which is really how you end up um, changing. And so violent flanks really harm movements and we're seeing more of them. Um, and the last thing about social movements is they really want a politics of respectability. Um, this has been really maligned by the left, particularly lately. The, there's this desire to, you know, we should be able to be what we want to be and we shouldn't have to follow the kind of respectable nature of um, whatever society is demanding, particularly when society itself is problematic. Uh, I understand that emotionally, but um, if you want a broad-based social movement that appeals to many, many people who particularly appeals to the people in power that you're trying to get to defect, and to speak less abstractly, you know, you want the police to be on your side, right? You want as many police as possible to be on your side when you're trying to reform the police. Um, if the police are part of a military structure, you need parts of the military on your side. You cannot show up in green hair and, um, you know, looking like a hippie or look, you have to look like the people that you're trying to um, get to be on your side. It's why the civil rights movement insisted on people showing up in ties and skirts and so on. It's really important because you're trying to convince the very people that you're trying to reform that you're not so scary. And um, so social movements that are trying to alter the way the middle class um, or the upper middle class think um, need to be broad-based, non-violent, no violent flanks, and probably employ politics or respectability to get there. And it's still really hard. It's not, you know, it's not easy to build a social movement. You're trying to keep a lot of people in line, but um, it has been done. You know, in America, we had a very major criminal justice reform. Um, it really mattered. Um, it still needs, it has a long way to go, but it really mattered. And it was exactly all this, you know, we brought the Koch brothers together with the far left to really change our criminal justice system. That's broad based, um, completely nonviolent and so on. And so, um, so, you know, these things can work, but they're hard. Thank you very much. A police professional social movement called the Societies of Evidence-Based Policing founded in Britain, now active in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States, uh, nascent in some other countries, one in the global south where it was kind of pushed back because it sounds like a police union, which it's not. But when you have the police themselves saying, we've got to do better and we've got to act based on evidence, but we've got to defend human rights, that's a different kind of professional social movement and one that I think is going to have increasing influence on police reform in the years to come. Thank you, Lawrence. That's a, a positive note to end on. <laughs> um, thank you so much to my guests. You've been brilliant. Um, it's been both comparative and you've used, talked us through the evidence and you've been entertaining as well. So um, my profound thanks from the LSE. Thank you for my, to the audience. And uh, yes, I'll bid you good evening. And let's hope we can all make a bit of a difference to reforming police. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.